Well, if you haven't already, turn your Bibles to 3 John, just to the right of 2 John, where we were last week. I mentioned to you last week in our study uh, that 1 John was written for the purpose of being sent around to other churches within that province uh, around Ephesus where John was living. And I also mentioned that 2nd and 3rd John were called by one commentator a matched pair of letters that were more specified or specific and personal than 1st John. I pointed out that the domestic language in 2nd John as well as the plural usage of that pronoun you suggested and and most believe uh, that that letter was sent to a church and that the members of that church were, in fact, the children that he referred to, her her children. Um, In this third letter and the second of this matched pair, we get even more specific, even more personal than the letter before it. And it's because, and we know that because it's addressed to a specific person, Gaius, and within the letter, not just the conclusion of the letter, but in the body of the letter, he makes reference to other individuals to which he wants to draw attention. And if I had to boil the letter down, if we were to say, okay, give us one statement that summarizes the letter, it would be this, life is as simple as walking in truth and love, and that involves looking up, looking out and not in, and looking around. Looking up, looking out, not in, and looking around. And our, you're going to see in the back of your bulletin, the outline is going to reflect that statement. We're going going to see an upward focus, we're going to see an outward focus, we'll see an inward focus, and then we'll see a relational focus, those four things. And hopefully, when we're done, in the words of John Gresham Machen, we will rise from our perusal of this letter with a more steadfast devotion to the truth and a warmer glow of Christian love. And of course, as we always do before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come now to proclaim and listen to and study the truth that you have spoken once for all by your Son, who is the truth, as well as the way and the life. This truth is absolute and objective and authoritative, eternal, infallible, and inerrant, and vastly more important than anything we have to say. We believe that through it you grant us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and that it is all profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And through it you complete us, equipping us for every good work. And so we would ask that by it and your spirit tonight, that you would challenge us, strengthen us, and encourage us in these moments. Would you use me as you see fit? And as I just said, may may we rise from our study with a more steadfast devotion to the truth and a warmer glow of Christian love. In Jesus' name and 
For his sake, we pray for the sake of his church as well. Amen and amen. All right, so let's look at verse 1, and let's start with our upward focus. John writes and says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Now, as, as he did in the second letter, he begins by expressing his love for the one to whom he is writing. And of course, this is Gaius. And we don't know much about Gaius at all other than John considers him a friend. And we also know that John loves him very much. And we know that because three different times he calls him beloved. And this love that he has for him uh, wasn't based upon the fact that they were childhood friends, at least that we know of. It wasn't based on likes or dislikes that they may have shared in common, or it wasn't due to their social or cultural or ethnic identities that they shared. He says that this love he has for him is based on the truth. He loves him in truth. And so we gather from that that it was their shared justification and adoption that was theirs in Christ. It was their mutual union that they shared uh, with Christ. And it was, also, it was also the common confession of faith that they had in the person and work of Christ as well as the larger body of apostolic teaching and doctrine that was the foundation for their relationship. It was the basis of the love that John had for Gaius. And so John's love for Gaius transcended any similarities, any differences that they might have had. It transcended anything else about their life. And it was that bond and connection that they shared with one another that caused John to express far more than just mere pleasantries in this greeting. Notice what he says. He says, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Now, John's desire was that Gaius would experience God's blessings physically. He wanted him to succeed. He wanted him to prosper. And it wasn't in a health and wealth and prosperity gospel type of way, but it was out of concern for his entire well-being. He was concerned about him completely. It, that well-rounded and complete well-being grew out of his primary focus, which was spiritual. He had a spiritual, he had a desire for Gaius' spiritual health. He had a, a desire for Gaius to have a strong spiritual condition. And he was aware of that spiritual condition based upon the testimony of others that had had crossed Gaius's path, or had crossed John's path. We, he knew based on the testimony of others that Gaius was walking the talk. Gaius was walking in a manner of life that was consistent with the faith that he professed. He had heard testimony that, from others that, that he was strong spiritually, but what gave evidence of that strong spiritual place or condition was 
that his faith was being worked out in love. And John says he was overjoyed. Actually, he says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children, Gaius included, are walking in the truth. So while Gaius prayed for his physical prosperity and success, his primary concern and joy was that he was prospering spiritually. He wanted to see him growing and, and faithfully living out that faith. And so John's focus was upward. He was looking to that which was eternal and spiritual. That upward focus led to an overall love and care and concern for Gaius. He was concerned about him spiritually, but he was concerned about him physically. He was concerned about him mentally and emotionally and even physically. Brothers and sisters, we must ask ourselves if we share this upward focus with John. When we look around the room and when we look at the, the different sections and the people that are here, do we see those that we love? Not just down your aisle, but across aisles. Can we, can we all call one another beloved because we see one another as those who, who share something that transcends our similarities and differences. We see each other sharing a common justification and adoption in Christ. We see one another as those who have a mutual union with Christ and therefore are, we have a mutual union with one another. Do we see each other as those who have a common confession of faith in the person and work of Christ and the greater apostolic teaching that we find summarized in the Westminster Confession of Faith? Are we concerned first and foremost, as we look around, are we concerned first and foremost with the spiritual condition of those that we see? And does that spiritual condition lead us to, to want those around us to prosper and be successful physically and mentally and emotionally. Again, not in that health and wealth and prosperity gospel way. But do we look at each other and desire physical health and we want our businesses to succeed and we want, you know, homes to be purchased and things like that. And we, do we want that overall well-being for those in our midst. But again, is it arising out of that desire for spiritual growth and strength? And do we desire to not only see each other succeed at home and at work and in, in the marketplace, but do, we, do, do the spiritual successes of the others around us fuel, fuel joy-filled celebrations? among us that glorify and honor the Lord? And are we concerned for other Christians that are a part of our body? Do we desire the same thing for the larger Christian community? Do we look beyond our aisles and to those that we know who are walking in faith and do we de desire to see that, 
that same thing in them. And you know, it's interesting. I, I do believe that that's the case. I, I've heard, I heard of a conversation this week taking place in which uh, members of our church have been inviting their friends to, to come because to, to, to come and worship with us, not to proselytize them because they're a part of another church, but their church isn't meeting right now. And the concern for the friends are that they, they're isolated and alone and apart from the body. And the invitation is, come, avail yourselves of the simple means of grace. Come hear the gospel. Come to the table with us. You don't have to stay once your church opens. But don't remain alone now. That's what John's talking about. An upward focus. The question is, of course, what is Gaius doing that others were testifying to? What was he doing that earned John's commendation? What was, what was, how was he walking in truth? No, let's look at verse 5. He has an outward focus, right? And he's walking in love. It says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Those who were testifying about, to John about what Gaius was doing, were, they knew what Gaius was doing firsthand. They had been recipients of Gaius' love and care and concern. Right? His walking in love was evidenced, again, again, because he, well, his walking in love was evidence of his walking in truth. And, and these knew that well because they had been recipients of it. They were traveling around for the sake of and in the name of Christ, and they could have been itinerant ministers, they could have been missionaries, they could have been sent out by a church to do one specific thing of church business, or they could have gone out in the name of another Christian friend. But one thing is for sure, they were fellow believers, and Gaius had welcomed them in and shown them hospitality, even though they were strangers. He brought them in. He gave them, he opened his home and he gave them of his resources. He provided for their physical needs and more than likely ministered to them spiritually and emotionally and mentally and physically. And, and John says, look, keep that up, right? Continue to do that. Don't stop. Continue to exhibit this generosity. Show this hospitality. Because he says those that, you know, these guys that are out there, going out in the name of Christ are not going to be taken care of by non-Christians. Probably the exact opposite is going to take place. And so he says, you know, Gaius, you know, take care of them because when you do, you're partnering with them in ministry. Now remember last week, what did we say? Don't, don't welcome, show hospitality to false teachers. Why? Because we'll be partnering with them. Now he's saying, look, bring in these teachers of the truth because we want to partner with them. There's an obvious distinction of what's going on. Bring them in. And when you do, 
you're partnering with them, and you will not only encourage them, but as others hear of the testimony, right, as, as, as they go out as they were, and they go to John, or they go to others and say, guess what Gaius is doing? The church as a whole is going to be encouraged. You're going to be encouraged by the example. Gaius' focus was outward. He's a living example, a living illustration of Romans 12. You know, he wasn't being conformed to the world, but he had been transformed by the renewing of his mind. He knew what the will of the Lord was that had been revealed through the Lord Jesus, and he knew that that will was good, acceptable, and perfect. Because that had been revealed to him, he gave of himself as a living sacrifice, and that was a spiritual act of worship. And how did that play itself out? Well, he didn't think of himself too, too highly or too lowly, but he saw himself as someone who had been graciously given faith in the gifts that could be used to minister to others. And so we see him doing exactly what Paul said. He was abhorring what was evil. He held fast to that which was good. He loved others with brotherly affection. He attempted to outdo others in showing honor, and he contributed to the needs of the saints and sought to show and succeeded in showing hospitality. You ever want to know what Hebrews 12 means? Come to 3 John and look at Gaius. And brothers and sisters, while it is, of course, appropriate, we could expand the, the illustration or the uh, application of this to those outside of the Christian community and to non-believers and our, na- our neighbors, but the primary focus here is This primary outward focus is the local congregation and the larger Christian community. How do we treat other Christians? And there are a couple of things that I want to bring to mind. First, we as a body can exhibit that outward focus by supporting missionaries and church planning both here and abroad. And as we move toward particularization in just about six weeks, And as Wes announced, we're going to be forming a missions committee. And we have the opportunity through that missions committee and through a missions budget for the fiscal year to do exactly what John is encouraging or what he's praising Gaius for doing. We also, as a part of that budget, we'll be talking about how we might give to our presbytery and to the standing committees of our general assembly. Again, how we might partner with others in faith. It's a very practical way of doing that. But of course, we can also take in furloughed missionaries, traveling pastors. Um, You know how fast our community is growing right now. We have people all the time that are looking to stay for, for, for a time as a transition, and we might have the opportunity to open our homes to them. Or there may be, now that Children's Hospital is open, there may be a a Christian family whose child is at Children's and they don't have a place to stay, and we might have the opportunity as they present themselves to invite them in and to take care of them. Just examples of how we might do what John is praising Gaius for. And secondly, as I mentioned during our study of Hebrews 13, We should, of course, always be ready and desire to and be ready to step in and generously meet the needs of those within our body. There may be some sort of unforeseen stretch of unemployment or or bill come up or unexpected accident that takes place or a long-term illness or some short-term need that can't be met, and, and we have the opportunity to generously meet those needs. 
We should desire to want to meet those needs. And that can be done monetarily. That can be done through physical effort, work, something. Um, but we should be ready and willing to, to exhibit and extend hospitality and love within the life of our church. That's an outward focus outside of ourselves. But that brings us to the inward focus. The inward focus of diatrophies. Um, John calls it evil, right? We, we saw where Paul said, you know, abhor what is evil. Well, we need to abhor what diatrophies is doing here. Look at verse 9. I've written something to the church, but diatrophies, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who, wants, uh, who want to and puts them out of the church. So John had apparently written a letter to Gaius' church. And Diotrephes manipulated, more than likely, himself into a position where he was the one that received the letter. And if he didn't do it that way, he just took it from whoever got it. He didn't want anybody else to have it. And unlike Gaius, Diotrephes was exhibiting this inward focus, all turned in on himself. He had very little time for others because he was, it was all about him. I mean, the text can't be clear. He put himself first. A prime example of self-centeredness and selfishness. He did not put the needs of others before himself. He put himself before the needs of others. And everybody knew it. He also thought too much of himself. He thought so much of himself and so much of his knowledge that he would not even take the time or consideration, because he believed it to be unnecessary, to submit himself to, submit himself to any type of authority particularly apostolic authority. And it seems as though he's really overconfident and arrogant. But I think there was some insecurity there as well. The insecurity was exhibited through this wicked nonsense that he was speaking, or slander. So it wasn't enough for him to just not submit to those in authority. He wanted to make sure he broke the ninth commandment when speaking about those in authority. And I say that exhibits an insecurity because what do people do, right? If they don't have a, a, a logical argument or if they don't have a valid argument as to why he's questioning their authority, he he turned to ad hominem arguments and attempted to ruin their reputations when it came to others within the church. He had baseless accusations that he was making. And basically what he was doing, what, what we do when we're insecure, and he was tearing down others that he might look better. And to maintain this illegitimate control that he thought he had or he was trying to take, he would refuse, right? He would refuse to take in 
those same people that Gaius was taking in. Why, why wouldn't he want those teachers to come in? Because he, wanted, they, he didn't want anybody to see the disparity between himself and others. And he hated it so much, he didn't want to do it so much, he would, he would even, you know, he would stop them from coming, but then he would try to kick out those who were doing it, that were bringing them in. Again, doing it in an illegitimate way. Right? We see there's church membership, he's trying to exercise his version of church discipline and clear off the membership role. And look what John says, he said, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. In other words, guys, don't be like Diotrephes. Don't follow his example. Don't imitate the evil that he is exhibiting. Do what you've been doing. Imitate good. Take in Demetrius, more than likely the one delivering the letter. Take him in. We'll vouch for him. Good teacher. Walking the walk. Don't do the evil thing and, and cast him out. Evil doesn't come from God. Good comes from the Lord. And back in verse 10, he said, if, if I come, I'm going to call Diotrephes out. I'm going to call him out for what he's saying. And then in verse 12, he says, you know, in the meantime, regardless of what Diotrephes does, He's a faithful brother. Right? Love him and take care of him. And brothers and sisters, I wish, I wish I could say that this description of this man was an outlier or an anomaly. But it's not. Um, there are these types of people in many churches. And I wish I could say I had never, I had the, the, I was fortunate enough to never have encountered one of these individuals in my 30 years of ministry, but I can't. They do exist. And their presence within the church is corrosive. Like I've, you've heard me say before, it's like a malignant cancer. They're like a malignant cancer that spreads. And it wreaks havoc on the health of the church. They, they bring reproach on the, name of the, uh, on the name of Christ because they profess to be believers. And they impede the growth of the body and they undermine and inhibit the ministry of the gospel. And they, and they leave wounded countless number of Wounded people in their wake. An inward focus is contrary to who we are as believers. James says it's the cause of quarrels and fights. Paul says it's the reason for strife and dissension and, that, you know, and why we bite, devour, and consume one another. But the alternative, the alternative of course, is much better. Putting others first, submitting to legitimate authority, encouraging and building one another up, being hospitable, fulfilling your role within the church and helping others do the same all for the sake of Christ in this church. 
And fortunately for us, on this our second anniversary, I can say that that latter description is what we have seen. Praise the Lord for that. May it always be so. Well, finally, that brings us to a relational focus. Again, I mentioned last week that John ends this matching pair very, very similarly. In 2 John, he said, Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face. And in 3 John, he said, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. In both cases, the reason I saved last week for this week to address them at the same time is because he's, he's just got a lot of other things he wants to say in both cases. But he, but he wants to wait because communicating through pen and paper by writing a letter just doesn't seem, just doesn't seem right. And it has nothing to do with length, right? These last two letters have been really short. But it doesn't have anything to do with length. We know that from 1 John and his, 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 uh, and his gospel as well. We know from both of those things that he is not afraid to write something lengthy. So it's, it's more than length. And I think his desire, as, as we've read through these letters and as we know John, we see that his desire to not write is because he knows that what he has to say is much better face to face. He knows that what he wants to communicate is much better looking eye to eye, spending time with them. He wants them to see his facial expressions. He wants them to see his tone of voice. He wants them uh, to, to know uh, his, his pastoral heart that can't necessarily be gained completely through a letter. He wants to interact with them. He knows that that face-to-face -face interaction is more intimate than writing. He knows that by sitting down and looking at them that the, the conversation will be encouraging and uplifting and spiritually satisfying. Communicating through letters is good, but it's, it's not the same as being together. I mean, it it almost creates a desire, a stronger desire to be together. They're good for the in-between times, but they can't substitute for that personal contact that we all want. And so, brothers and sisters, in this age in which we live where screens and keyboards have replaced pen and ink, John's words here are as much for us as they were for his original readers. I think a case can be made that very few relationships will be strengthened, very few spiritual gifts will be exercised, very little discipleship will take place, very few arguments will be won, very few opinions will be changed, very few false teachers will be converted, and very few of their followers will be convinced of the error of those they listen to and read through social media, text, and email alone. 
I know there are exceptions. There are always exceptions, and there's always a chance someone has a personal anecdote of how those methods have been, uh, have been very positive. But I think it's safe to say a vast majority of our electronic communication that takes place online remains superficial and exponentially, right? There's an exponentially greater chance of those conversations devolving into overly heated and hurtful conversations that do more harm than good. And that's because tones in those settings, tones are inferred. Uh, words and statements are misinterpreted and motivations are misapplied. And I, I am well aware and I know that face-to-face interaction doesn't eliminate all the problems and it doesn't necessarily guarantee success, right? It doesn't happen the way we want it to. But I do believe they will increase the likelihood that if we abstaining from those things, face-to-face interactions will increase the likelihood of us speaking the truth in love and what we say being received in a way that we intend for it to be received. Online interactions are secondary. They bridge the gap. That help, they help us stay in touch and check in between the face-to-face meetings. They're not the primary basis for our relationships. Our primary desire and our energy should be directed toward those face-to-face interactions. Having dinner within one another's homes, worshiping together, ministering and serving alongside one another, taking walks together, riding bikes together, playing together, going to the beach together. And actually... And really, we can, we could even, think about this, use our phones to talk. And I'm not a phone talker. But hearing one another's voice versus seeing someone else's bold face type makes a difference. You know, those real-time, face-to-face, intimate moments are when we get to know one another. And as a side note, I will say that writing with pen and ink communicates more today, maybe, than it did even then because you're taking the time. And I know that's going on out here, by the way. People that take the time every week to write a note to somebody else. And I've heard the positive reactions when someone receives one of those. So I'm not disparaging pen and ink. Just screen and keyboard. You know, it's hard to believe, right? Two years. Second anniversary. And it's been a pleasure. It's been more than a pleasure to walk alongside all of you over these last two years. And I hope and pray, as I know you do, that we're looking forward to many, many years to come. And I think the study of these two letters coming at this time of our anniversary and our particularization has not just been good, but divine. 
something good for us to think about as we move forward. And so may we be reminded through these two letters that we are to walk in truth and love. And that we can do that very simply by looking up and looking out, not in and looking around. Taking our focus off of ourselves and putting it where it should be. And so I pray that our study tonight, um, I pray that it would call us to repent if our focus has turned inward or if it is turning inward. And I pray that it would help us to refocus and look upwardly, outwardly, and relationally. And that the Lord would do that as He sees fit. And as I say every week, may we receive what has been preached tonight with faith and love. And may we lay it up in our hearts and practice it in our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.